welcome back to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and what I'm doing today is I'm finally getting a chance to talk about something that I've wanted to come back to for a really long time now. Uh, guys, maybe the best way to put it is that I've really changed up the way that I, that I do this show over the years. Basically, what happened was I took a hiatus for, it was several months actually, but I took a hiatus for a long time there. And when I came back, I came back doing just a crap ton of episodes about Legion of Superheroes comics, specifically five years later. And instead of doing just one episode about a comic book and then doing another episode the following week, uh, following week about a completely unrelated comic and then another episode the week after that, about a, another completely unrelated comic. I wanted to have a little bit of focus there for a couple of weeks and spend a little bit more time with, in this case, the Legion of Superheroes five years later than I would have in the past. So hopefully that makes sense. <clears throat> so, so there's that. Now, the other thing is regarding the music, guys, I've done so many episodes about Legion of Superheroes in particular, the five years later era that it's kind of hard to remember, after having done so many, it's hard to remember what I have said and what I haven't said. So forgive me if this is a repeat of a bunch of stuff that you guys have already heard before, but the music that you're hearing right now, in terms of genre, it's called Synthwave. And basically, Synthwave as a genre, it's, it, it's basically supposed to be, well, in general, all about just how awesome life was back in the 80s, you know? Uh, how awesome, you know, the 80s as a decade itself was, you know, and so on and so forth. And for reasons I can't completely quantify, there's something specifically about the futurism of, uh, of the 1980s, specifically that the future was something to look forward to back in the 80s. Pairing the Legion of Superheroes up with Synthwave uh, just a bunch of synthwave music. I don't know why, but for some reason that combination is successful for me, you know? For some reason, there's something, there's some kind of compatibility going on with the Legion of Superheroes as, in its own way, sort of like comic book futurism and synthwave, and specifically, I guess, like the future expectations people had, or the expectations people had about the future back in the 80s that maybe it wouldn't literally be this the legion of superheroes but just that the future would be a very cool place to be you know just like the, the coolness of everything you know and to me that's why they sort of go together you know so i mean because there, there is a sense in which maybe it is sort of anachronistic to pair something that goes so far out of its way to be 80s with something that is obviously set in the future but for some reason they actually against all odds they do somehow complement each other i think perfectly so Anyway, so so that's that. Now, in case it hasn't become obvious to you yet, yes, I'm going to be talking about more Legion of Superheroes comics today. Specifically, this is uh, the Legion of Superheroes, Volume 4, Number 8. And, well, you know what? Instead of, <clears throat> instead of just talking more and more and more and more, maybe I'll just go ahead and just get straight down to business. Uh, credits are as follows. Tom and Mary Beerbomb, Story. The GIF, which is to say Keith Giffen, Frame Pencils and Story Assist, 
Chris, Spa uh, Chris Sprouse, flashback pencils, Al Gordon, inks and story assist, Todd Klein, letterer, Tom McCraw, colorist, Michael Yuri, editor. And <clears throat> uh, story synopsis uh, for for actually what is actually what is the title of this thing? Does does it actually have a title? Well, fuck it, whatever. Uh, story synopsis for this issue, Legion of Superheroes, Volume Four, Number Eight. Story synopsis is as follows. The arrival of R.J. Brand to Earth and the founding of the Legion of Superheroes is retold from the eyes of Marla Latham, Brand's right-hand man. On Brand's asteroid, headquarters to Brand Industries, Marla receives a message from Chameleon Boy apprising him of goings-on from issue number seven. Specifically, getting stranded on... Uh, I'm not sure I can actually pronounce the name of this planet, but here it is anyway. Gross... G-R-O-C-Z, Gross, I guess, I don't know. Getting stranded on Gross by Mordrew and rescuing Missa and Ron from Mordrew's clutches. Marla being so impressed with Chameleon Boy prompts him to remember how he first met and then became employed by R.J. Brand. <clears throat> the, the scene shifts to Metropolis 45 years ago in the year 2949, where Marla tries to rescue a Durlin from an attack by xenophobic humans. Unbeknownst to Marla, he's just met R.J. Brand in his Durlin form for the very first time. Marla eventually manages to help Brand off the planet Earth and back to Durla, which maybe isn't such a good thing because Durla was in the throes of all manner of uh, conflict and civil problems at the time, the details of which I don't really know because I'm sort of a Legion numbnuts. Fifteen years later, Marla has risen through the ranks at his company and become the doc supervisor. And it was around that time that he met R.J. Brand in his human guise, not connecting him with the scared Durlin that he'd rescued 15 years earlier. Marla goes to work for Brand as a sort of replacement for R.J.'s cousin Doyle. Doyle has been... He's been becoming increasingly distracted from his work by beer, women, more beer, and some more women. Which a lot of guys can tell you those two things are never a good combination. Anyway... <clears throat> Things get to a point where RJ realizes he has no choice but to buy Doyle out. It doesn't take long for Doyle to run run through his buyout money, though, so he continually writes to RJ demanding more money, but RJ won't pay him another nickel, no matter what kind of threats Doyle makes. RJ isn't paying much attention to Doyle. In fact, he's not paying much attention to anything besides his collection of 20th century memorabilia. All he ever... All he ever seems to want to do is admire his collection and make noises about giving something back to the universe. In spite of everything Marla can say to warn RJ, his boss refuses to take Doyle's threats seriously. That very nearly comes back to bite RJ in the ass because Doyle hires an assassin to kill him. But the assassination is narrowly foiled by some, uh, well, by a couple of nobodies called Imra Ardeen, Rock Crin and Garth Rance, but I'm guessing we're never going to hear anything about any of them ever again. But anyway, Brand realizes this is his big chance to finally contribute something meaningful and positive to the universe. With the 20th century superhero Monel, or actually in, in this post-Glorith continuity that we're dealing with here, Largand, as his inspiration, RJ insists that Marla take the lead in helping him create the Legion of Superheroes. There are some bumps along the way, of course, but eventually the Legion emerges as a potent force for good. Their membership grows in general proportion to their legend. 
and they are really making a name for themselves now. Shortly after, Marla meets with a Durlin called Reap Daggle and invites him to join the team. After thinking it over for about two seconds, Reap agrees to join the Legion with an enthusiasm that kinda sorta reminds Marla of RJ himself, but of course, there's no possible way that Reap could somehow be connected to RJ, right? Back in his office in the modern day of 2994, Marla uh, stirs out of his nostalgic remembrances and asks to be put in contact with Spiffany. Elsewhere on Zir, Rond and Rock watch Lauren beat, uh, sorry, Laurel beat the snot out of some coons and uh, as they catch up on the wackiness that has engulfed their lives together, as well as separately, not to mention the wackiness that's engulfed the entire United Planets lately. After Laurel is done kicking the stuffings out of the last of the coons, Rock and Rond follow her back home where Rond and Laurel introduce their daughter, Lauren. To be continued. <clears throat> so, what did I think? Well, uh, guys, right from the very beginning, you know, this cover, it goes a long way to just visually establishing what this issue is going to be all about and how everything is going to work. But just in case you're not completely sure what might be, what might follow the cover, the the logo of, the logo on this cover, instead of just saying Legion of Superheroes, the logo on the cover has a little caption right above it that says the origin of the Legion of Superheroes. So it's pretty clear that this is going to be a look back at how the Legion formed. Now, I want to get a little bit... I want to get a little bit more into this, um, maybe a little bit later, but it is kind of... This is one of those things where there are many agendas for why we're getting this particular story at this particular time presented in this particular way. You know? There are many reasons for that. Now, one of the most obvious reasons is that, guys, when it come when it comes to the Legion of Superheroes, I'm I'll be the first to admit, not an expert. All right, I like reading Legion of Superheroes comics, but I'm one of those people who thinks that just because you enjoy uh, reading a particular kind of uh, comic book or uh, you enjoy watching a certain sports team, you know, from time to time or you follow, you, you make a priority of seeing a certain franchise of movies or, or just fucking whatever. Just because you have kind of a passive enjoyment in doing these things, that doesn't mean you get to call yourself a fan. Because to me, if you're going to call yourself a fan, you there needs to be some kind of expertise that's going on here. You know, I'm not saying that you have to be the world's leading authority. I'm just saying you kind of need to know what the fuck you're talking about. And when it comes to the Legion... I don't necessarily know what the fuck I'm talking about. So uh, all of this is sort of a long way of saying that continuity is extremely important to the Legion. So even though I'm kind of a Legion of Superheroes dumbass, I still know this. All right. Continuity matters to the Legion. And I would say it matters and it matters to the Legion in ways that maybe maybe aren't true of Spider-Man or... Um, I don't know, a Green Lantern or something. You know, maybe continuity is a little bit more of a negotiable thing with those comics. I don't think it's, uh, and, and I think history kind of backs me up here. I don't think 
that continuity is necessarily a, a negotiable thing. And it's actually for that reason that I'm not reading the, the Brian Bendis Legion of Superheroes stuff that's that's coming out right now. All right. I don't see why I should pay like $4.99 or, or however much comics are going for these days for a comic book that probably has fewer than 22 pages in it. And guys, I've seen those YouTube videos. You can literally rub the ink off the page because of just how cheap it's it's produced. You get fewer pages of story. You probably get more ads. You're definitely getting a higher cover price. You're getting a shittier uh, uh, print job with your comics. And it's like, the fuck, dude? I mean, why should I spit... You know, this is turning into a rant. So, anyway, point is, let's just talk about a comic book that doesn't suck. Um, Legion of Superheroes, number eight. Um, continuity is really important with the Legion, right? And like I say, I'm pretty sure history kind of bears me out on that a little bit. And so it makes sense to me, you know, considering that at this point we've been through, depending on how you look at it, two separate reboots in this Legion, or not reboots, two separate retcons in this Legion series up to this point. Maybe it makes sense to take a look back at the past and see how the Legion came together. You know, that certain things are inviolable when it comes to the Legion and specifically their formation, will never be changed until the three boot, that is. But anyway, that's maybe getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So to finally fucking talk about this cover here, it does kind of do a good job of creating a little bit of a mission statement for what this issue is going to be all about. That specifically, this is going to be, I don't want to say a filler issue, although let's be realistic, this is a little bit of a filler issue. Uh, it basically features, uh, Lightning Lad, Saturn Girl, Cosmic Boy, uh, uh, Laurel Gand, and Furball, right? They're all on the cover. And exactly halfway through this cover, there's a, there's a bisection. So Lightning Lad, Saturn Girl, and half of Cosmic Boy, they're in that shiny, happy, just all around better futuristic world full of primary colors and just kind of more simple comic book stories. This is a very Silver Age Legion on the left half of the cover. On the right half of the cover, this is the the grittier, nastier, dirtier, five years later future where you don't see a whole lot of primary colors. And the Legion, they really have been just beaten down by life, the universe, and everything. So basically, this visually shows what had... What has been and how that relates to what is now and so i think it's just really well done not to mention the fact that the left half of the, of the cover was well it was drawn by kurt swan whereas the right half of the cover is drawn by the gif and so you really do get a this is a logical transition you know from one to the other and so anyways i dig this cover i think it's really good and it it, it goes a long way towards like I say, just visually establishing what what this issue is going to be all about. So anyway, so there you go. So that's that. So great cover, in other words. So from there, we get this sort of framing device of uh, Marla hanging around in his office. This is obviously in the modern day <laughs> of uh, 2994. And uh, he's talking with his... I don't even know what the hell these little robot-looking things are supposed to... They're basically... I, eyeless, blue-skinned 
sort of semi-sentient robot. I, I don't completely know what this is all about. So anyway, um, yeah. So it's basically him, and this is the uh, this page follows the the conventional nine-panel grid that the GIF has used all through this series up to this point. And one of the reasons that you that you would want to use kind of a uniform sort of layout like this throughout the previous issues is so, and this is on page one, so that beginning on page two, when you start using more, I don't know, dynamic kinds of comic book layouts, there is an artistic effect that is achieved, you know? So whereas the uh, the modern day of 2994 on page one has, like I say, nine panels arranged in that three by three grid, when you get into page two, which has four panels, three of which are on the bottom half of the page, <clears throat> it does show you that this is this is a different era that this part of the story is taking place in, hence the different kind of the uh, different kind of layout. And I just fucking dig that. you know it's I don't know if this was intentional. I kind of have to believe that it was because the gif really was the point man on the Legion at, at this point in their publication history. So pretty much what he says goes. So if for for the the pages of comic that are not drawn by the GIF, I'm sure it would have been easy for him to call up his editor, Michael Yuri, and say, yeah, any guest artists who work on the Legion for the time being and going into the foreseeable future, they all need to stick to the nine panel grid. He could have done that and he didn't. So... I have to believe that there there's a lot of intentionality behind not using the nine panel grid in the parts of these stories that are that are set in the past. So anyway, so there you go. And speaking of which, that pretty well takes us to a page two and panel one. <clears throat> you know, at the very top of the page here, we get this really cool sort of glory shot of Metropolis. It's all shiny and high tech and futuristic looking, and it's just just fucking cool to look at. I like this panel because we've spent so much time in this kind of dingier, uglier, nastier, five years later future that seeing things as they were sort of in the future Metropolis's heyday, it's it it's just kind of nice. And plus, this just sort of reminds me of Coruscant from the Star Wars prequels. And for, you know, whether you love or hate the Star Wars prequels, I, I hope that we can all agree... Coruscant from the Star Wars prequels is just fucking awesome. So I'm going to get a sip off of uh, my orange vanilla Coke here. So just bear with me for just a moment. Also, <clears throat> also going to get a... Uh, Drag off my uh, vaporizer here. Just a minute. All right, so moving right along, getting into page three, we see Marla. Uh, intervene uh, with the with the attack on uh, R.J. Brand and his uh, in his uh, Darlin form. He's getting the crap beaten out of him by some dock workers, 
and Marla runs into the rescue. And guys, here again, this is this is one of those times when my lack of Legion of Superheroes expertise may actually be working against me. I don't know if this is something that was established new for specifically this issue, this whole sequence where Marla tries to rescue R.J. Brand and then the dock workers turn on him and start beating the tar out of him too. I don't know if this is something that it, that had existed in you know Legion history prior to this moment or not, but I do kind of like the idea that Marla is... He, he's not an action hero, guys. He's, he's basically a guy who saw something very wrong happening. He tried to jump to the rescue and save the Durlin's life, you know, using his fists. And guys, I'm sorry, there are three of three of the other guys, one of him. All right? This ain't no fairy tale. You go up against three three attackers, odds are you're going to get your ass kicked, okay? It's just as simple as that. I mean, yeah, I guess maybe sometimes it can happen. You can take on multiple opponents at the same time and not only live to tell the tale, actually win. I, yeah, I guess maybe sometimes that can happen, but let's be realistic. The majority of the time, if you if you have to find if you find yourself having to square off with three different guys all at the same time, you're probably gonna lose. And I just kind of like the fact that Marla, without without any doubt whatsoever, he is losing this fight on page three and then getting into the very top of page four. He's losing the fight. That makes sense to me. I buy that. And so what he's able to do is switch off the uh, the uh, <clears throat> uh, force field surrounding uh, the Durlin, unbeknownst to him, is R.J. Brand. But anyway, he manages to turn off the force field uh, surrounding R.J. Brand. And so <sighs> R.J. basically shapeshifts into uh, a, a, a giant-sized uh, fighter. And so he fights some of the... Uh, some of the attacking dock workers, and then Marla takes on the other one, and they win that way. And again, I find that to be a believable way of concluding this fight, you know, because ultimately this issue isn't really about the fight, so you pretty much have to begin and end it pretty quickly. And indeed, it begins and ends pretty pretty quickly. So anyway, and the point is, it it, it begins and ends very quickly in a way that I find very believable. So anyway... <clears throat> Moving right along, uh, we basically get this kind of extended sequence where Marla has to find a way to smuggle RJ off off planet. And doing so isn't very easy to do, but Marla's not a quitter. He even financially contributes to the cause. And I just think this this all of this, you know, the fight and then trying to get RJ back home, this really shows just what a what a good guy. Marla really is. <clears throat> and so when RJ comes back to him years and years down the line and singles Marla out, as he does on page nine, singles Marla out and says, hey, I want you to come to work for me. I mean, yeah, there is a sense in which RJ does owe Marla his life. You know, who's to say that those dock workers wouldn't have killed him? But he's also seen Marla's true character, up close and personal, you know? Marla helped somebody who, as far as Marla knew, would never, ever be able to help him in return, or give something back, or repay him, or whatever, you know? And ultimately, that 
that is true charity, you know, helping people who will never, ever be able to do anything in return for you or repay you or anything. That is real charity. And I think a kind and just loving soul like RJ would value those qualities in Marla. It makes sense to me that from the get-go, as soon as RJ starts building up his fortune, he's going to he's going to want to find some kind of way of not so much helping Marla in order to pay him back, but I guess helping Marla because let's face it, Marla in his own way, I mean, yeah, his his career has, you know, he has kind of worked his way up through the ranks. And he, you know, it's not like he hasn't succeeded in his own ways, but basically help him, not so much to re to repay him or to return the favor or anything, but just because now he's in a position to do so. But I think, I think RJ would want a dividend. You know, he'd want to keep an eye on Marla and find out what exactly Marla's strengths and talents are so that he can find the best possible place for him in, in brand industries. And so, anyway, and I just kind of like that a lot of this stuff is kind of implied. You know, you can read between the lines and kind of see this for yourself. I like that. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort or persuasion on Brand's part to talk Marla into into joining joining the team. And one of the things that I kind of like about this is that you get the idea this is not entirely altruistic on RJ's part, as becomes apparent beginning on page 10, where we start finding out what kind of a guy Doyle really is, you know? And I'm, I want to be careful how I say this, guys. I've met people who are just incredibly, incredibly rich. And some of them can handle it, you know? They can handle having, in some cases, millions and millions of dollars. That's not going to destroy them. They're able to, to get their, their heads around having that kind of money, and it's not going to destroy them, you know? I've met other kinds of people who also have millions and millions of dollars, and guys, this is the worst thing that probably ever happened to them, you know? I mean, they slowly but surely, they reject everything that really matters in life. Because what matters in life, you know? Um, family matters, you know? Uh, I happen to believe that, you know, your religious faith, that matters. Um, you know, the good that you, that you can do for others, even if it's just in small, stupid, incidental ways, because let's face it, you know, a lot of people out there are, are really poor and there are limits to how much they can really help others. But just, you know, small things that, that people can do, you know, that, that, that benefit the community, you know, and society and other people, you know, people who are even worse off, you know? These types of people, rich people, it just fucking goes to their heads. And, you know, this is kind of a, this is a sort of a PG-rated version of it that we see in, uh, on page 10, panel one, where, where Doyle, he's basically surrounded by naked women. He's surrounded by booze. Uh, you can kind of infer that maybe he's surrounded, shall we say, by other sort of narcotic substances. He's gambling. He's smoking big cigars. He. This is the middle of the day when he's supposed to be working and he's just screwing around, kind of literally. And he's, at this point, he is a leech, you know? 
he is leeching off of society, leeching off of other people. And it, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that he's got millions of dollars, he's still leeching off of society's largesse. He's, he's leeching off of other people. He's certainly leeching off of Marla. I mean, that's for damn sure. I mean, the guy doesn't even do his fucking job anymore. He just sticks Marla with everything. And so at the bottom of page 10, where Brand says that, yeah, you know, we're going to have to to buy Doyle, uh, Doyle out. I guess what I like about this is this isn't a, a, a decision that RJ takes any pleasure in. But I mean, come on, you'd have to be kind of stupid to not realize that Doyle truly is a dead weight. Now, this is firm canon as far as I know. OK, this is established canon that the sort of proto legion of superheroes or at least the, the three founding members not only do they save R.J. Brand's life, they save him specifically from uh, a, a hit. All right, this was a hit job. This was a hit that was put out on him, specifically even by Doyle. I mean, that stuff is established canon. All right, that that has existed for a long time now in Legion of Superheroes lore, and so that much can't change. And so, what I think is going on here is we're getting details on the the grudge, I guess, uh, that existed between RJ and Doyle that resulted in the hit that Doyle put out on him. I don't know if that part has been part of, you know, Legion's established history for all these years or not. Maybe it has been, maybe it hasn't. But I get the idea, the exact degree of detail that the GIF is going through in this issue that explains... Well, actually, I, this isn't really the gift, though, is it? This, I think the beer bombs are the ones that actually wrote this history of the Legion. But whatever. Anyway, the the level of detail that the beer bombs are going through in in uh, establishing the, shall we say, less than productive, less than ideal working relationship between RJ and Doyle, I think that may be new. But if you know more about Legion continuity than I do... Let me know. Uh, send me a correction on this. So the reality of that, having been established on page 10, getting into page 11, and then sort of going forward from there, we get an idea of what what Brand's real passion is. And that is specifically his collection of 20th century me memorabilia, uh, artifacts, like superhero artifacts, um, and uh, things like that. And I guess the reason that this sort of adds up for me is because, I mean, Brand is originally from the 20th century. You know, he remembers this stuff. This is living memory for him. And of all people, I think that you would pretty much have to be uh, a virtuous, selfless <clears throat> uh, superhero to become somebody that R.J. Brand can truly respect and truly admire, you know? And Marla... He lives in an era that doesn't really have heroes as such. And <clears throat> I don't think that RJ is necessarily thinking in the direction right now of establishing his own superhero team. In writing, you need to have what you call synthesis, right? A character's day-to-day -day life, that's thesis. And then there comes a point when the character's life gets turned completely fucking upside down. That's antithesis. And then synthesis is how the character combines what had been with what is to create what will be. That is synthesis. And so basically what I think we're seeing here 
is that thesis for R.J. Brand had been living life in the 20th century, surrounded by superheroes and all that. Antithesis is when he finds himself living in the 30th century. There are no superheroes. And there's that sense of selflessness and, and virtue that, that Brand admires is just gone from the universe. And then synthesis comes following the assassination attempt. He puts the Legion of Superheroes together to bring the, the superheroism that he remembered from the 20th century into the 30th century. That is synthesis. Makes sense? So that, I think, is what we're seeing in this story. But I could be wrong. At the beginning of, or rather, at the bottom of uh, page 12, I'm, I could be wrong, okay? I reserve the right to be wrong on this, but Brand says, I'm taking the Nova Express and that's final. And I can't help thinking, that, that I think is kind of a shout out to Watchmen. Because, you know, obviously there's this left-wing publication that is somewhat prominently featured in in Watchmen called Nova Express. And here we we get something that's called Nova Express, name-checked at the bottom of page 12. Now, when it comes to game-changing 80s comics, for a lot of people, all, all roads sort of lead back to Watchmen. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I've got a hot take on Watchmen that you've never heard before. It's going to be completely... It, that's why... I've never done episodes about Watchmen. I'm not saying I'll never do any, but I haven't done episodes about Watchmen precisely because of the fact that I don't know what I can possibly bring to the table on that that you haven't already heard like a thousand frickin' times, you know? So what I will say, though, is that I do kind of like the idea of Legion of Superheroes name-checking uh, Watchmen in some way or another. And the reason for that is because... Watchmen took a lot of risks and chances with the uh, story that was being told, with the characters and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, Watchmen existed out of mainstream DC continuity. Yes, there came a point when that sort of changed a little bit, but at least to start with, it was intended to take place outside of mainstream DC continuity. So there's that. Um, another heavy-hitting 80s comic is The Dark Knight Returns, which, took a, again, took a lot of risks and chances with the story that it told, with the characters and all that fun stuff, but it, too, existed outside of mainstream DC continuity. And there are other things that I can, I can cite as well. The, one of the areas where I... Guys... I, I believe this hand on heart. I'm not saying this to be shocking or provocative or anything. One of the areas where I think this era specifically of Legion of Superheroes has a leg up on The Dark Knight Returns, on Watchmen and all, all those other just legendary titles from the 80s. This takes place in continuity. All right. This is part of mainstream DC Universe continuity. And... Yeah, you can point to the very near future where Zero Hour would wipe all of this out. But at the time that this comic book came out, this was everything that Legion of Superheroes five years later had attempted to do was all part of continuity. No one was looking for an escape hatch saying, well, this all happened for real on Earth 2. You know, no one was saying that. This is mainstream DC continuity that... Let's face it, 
a lot of risks and chances were being taken with the material here. I mean, the Legion, especially in the early to mid-80s, had been one of... That was basically one of two comics that was more or less keeping DC Comics in business. To take this many chances with one of your blue-chip titles... Guys, that's balls. Now, I can sit here and criticize some of the internal politics and bickering that was going on with the Superman office that the Legion office had to deal with and, you know, all these other sorts of things. But at the end of the day, guys, I mean, there was a very real chance that Legion of Superheroes Volume 4, which is basically what five years later is, that Volume 4 could have killed the Golden Goose. And there's even an argument that it did, although, I don't know. I mean, it's all in how you look at it, and I don't care to get into that stuff here. But my point is, guys, you know, this really could have gone either way. And I'm not saying that you have to love and adore the final product, but I am saying that I at least admire the the balls that the GIF had to tell this kind of story, present the characters in this kind of way, in mainstream fucking continuity, okay? There ain't no safety net for any of this. And yet, here we are anyway. So, um, I don't want to belabor the point. I just want to say that when I see this this bit at the bottom of page 12, name-checking uh, the Nova Express, obviously, whether this is an intentional Watchmen reference or not, obviously, one of the first things I'm going to think of is Watchmen. But... I just wanted to make it clear that one of the things that I do appreciate about Five Years Later is the fact that it takes risks and chances with mainstream continuity. And in that respect, it does have a leg up on Watchmen. So whatever, said my piece. So getting into page 13, we don't actually see RJ, uh, the assassination attempt on RJ and... Then uh, the uh, Legion of Superheroes founders swing to the rescue. We basically see a sort of a news. We we see Marla watch the news and it sort of recaps everything that happens. But we don't actually see this happen and then play out in real time. But you get the idea that Marla does. And all he does is just take the Lord's name in vain in one panel after another. On... uh, Right here on uh, uh, page 13. And I just dig it. It's just kind of a neat page. His co- He spills his coffee. It just goes splashing all over the place. And it's it really does show that like the, you, you can see the progression as the coffee mug slowly empties out and drips out onto the floor. And I don't know. Just really well done. So uh, getting to uh, page 15, Brand basically summons the uh, teenagers together. And he basically lays out his agenda a little bit with what what he wants the legion of superheroes to be and then he gives marla his marching orders i want you to make these kids into real superheroes and then after you've done that i want you to turn them into superstars i want their names to be heard all across the entire fucking galaxy and so from there you can kind of picture that if this was an 80s movie this would be the montage section it starts at the bottom of page 15. They're looking at their costume, saying, what is this? What am I even looking at? Page uh, 16 in panel one, 
they're on this kind of rickety, junky looking uh, spaceship. Panel two, they're looking out at Legion headquarters. Uh, panel three, they're in Legion headquarters having a meeting about tracking down Doyle for the assassination attempt on RJ Brand. Panel four, they finally catch up with Doyle and they kind of get their asses kicked a little bit. Uh, panel five, basically they foil a, a, a robbery and they, there's a bit of a misunderstanding with the science police, but the, they, they get it straightened out. Getting into, this is uh, page 17. Uh, this 80s montage continues. Uh, Phantom Girl and Triplicate Girl, they join the team and just on and on and on. And so finally, you know, all the havoc and all the stress that uh, that uh, uh, Marla's been living under, he finally takes it up with RJ. And basically this is just kind of a neat little character moment saying where Marla says, do we really need a girl who can split into triplicate? And RJ's answer to that is, my friend, everyone has something unique to contribute and she will be no exception. Now just relax, will you? The kids will find their way. And I just kind of like the fact that the Legion was brought together ultimately by RJ Brand. And you can see that there's, RJ is basically a, a kindred spirit. You know, if he still had his shape-shifting ability, there's an argument that RJ himself should be a member of the team. You know, but nevertheless, they they are kindred spirits. In their own ways, all of the Legionnaires are idealists. That's not to say they've got interchangeable personalities, because I don't think they do, but they are ultimately still idealists. And it makes sense that they would gravitate towards RJ, and RJ would gravitate towards them, you know? They're they're of a like mind with one another. And anyway, I just I just really dig that. Anyway, so moving right along, we get we we get Marla's sort of uh, meeting with with a uh, Reap, soon to be known as uh, Chameleon Boy, and I just kind of like the fact that by the time they have this meeting with one another, the Legion is not some pie in the sky ambition of RJ, and it's not a struggling enterprise that's trying to earn credibility. By the time this invitation to Reap is made to join the team, their name is known all through the cosmos and instantly commands respect. And so instantly, Reap accepts the invitation to join the team on page 19. And I just kind of like that, that this is, this is all one of, you can kind of infer that this is one of the dominoes that RJ himself is knocking over having Reap join the team, because I think he knows who Reap is, you know? I think he knows exactly who Reap Daggle actually is. And anyway, I just, I just dig that. So anyway, that brings us back to uh, the modern day of 2994, and Marla's basically, he dictates the message, he has it uh, sent out to, uh, or rather, he's, he listens to the message and says he doesn't want to uh, return it at this time. He just says, get me Spiffany. Dun, dun, dun. And so, anyway. Elsewhere, uh, on page 20, <clears throat> you can hear the sounds of, or rather, you can see the sound effects of uh, Laurel Gand beating the shit out of all of the coons as Ron Vidar and Rock Grin just kind of catch up with one another. And I guess the reason that I sort of like this is Rond and Rock, they have this sort of shorthand that they're talking to each other in, you know? Um, 
they don't necessarily wait for each other to complete a thought before they jump in with a reply. And I just, I just kind of like that. You know, this is how long they've known each other. And I don't know. Very well done. And this is not to speak of the fact that I just fucking adore the GIFs art. Uh, the art style he was using for this series, I just love it. Love it, love it, love it. And so, anyway, getting to uh, page 21, uh, Rock and Ron, they just casually stroll down what looks like this, looks like a just a junked out building. Uh, slowly make their way down to the ground level. They There they meet uh, Laurel Gand, and she's surrounded by the unconscious bodies of it looks like quite a bunch of coons, and and we're gonna find out not very long from now. In fact, we're gonna find out what exactly is up with uh, Laurel Gand and the coons. But at least for right now, you know you do you do get the idea that there's a little bit of a backstory going on there that we're just not privy to, and uh, it does kind of whet your appetite a little bit for what's coming in the very near future. So, anyway. On top of all that, getting into page 22, uh, this is, a, I have to believe this would be a, a pretty big punch in the gut for longtime uh, Legion readers and fans and the like, where you find out that Rond and, and Laurel are not only romantically involved, which I think was pretty well implied back in issue number seven, but here in issue number eight, it shows they're married and they even have a daughter. And so, you know, it's like, what the fuck? So, anyway, so there's that. But before we wrap up discussion of this issue, you know, there is this moment. Let's see, this is page... Yeah, page 22, panel 6. I mentioned... <clears throat> I mentioned in... Uh, when I was talking about Legion of Superheroes number 7, the... There were just times when the... Anatomy and proportion of some of the gifts art was i love it i love the gifts art but there are times when his anatomy and proportion is kind of fucked up because here again it looks like rock's ears are coming out of his neck a little bit and i really don't know what the fuck that's about because that's not that's not a consistent element i mean sometimes rock is drawn that way sometimes he isn't so i i don't know so um, anyway, it's weird, and it looks like Baby Lauren has it, uh, page 22, panel 8. She's kind of got a little bit of that same weirdness going on. I don't know what that's all about, you know, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm shitting on the gif, because I'm not. I love his work, but it's like every now and then you see weirdnesses like this. It's like, what the fuck happened? So, I don't know. But um, anyway, there are a couple of pages of text that are that go on with all this, and I'm, I don't want to get too deep into that. Basically, uh, page 23, this is more or less, you could say, an iPad that basically talks about R.J. Brand and just goings on with that. I don't want to dwell too much on that. And then page 24, this is, it's basically intercepted, uh, it's an intercepted uh, communique uh, with uh, the uh, Dominion relating to Laurel Gand and um, basically how it reinforces the idea that there's a serious rivalry between, well, and maybe it's even a little bit one-sided, but there is nevertheless a serious rivalry between uh, the Coons and Laurel Gand. And so what's that about? Like, why just her? Like, it, I guess it would make sense that 
the Coons would have it out for the Legion in general. So why are they making such a specific example out of Laurel? Like, what gives? And there's an answer to that. We're going to be finding out about the answer to that very soon. But that, my friends, will not be in this issue, but it will be in, like I say, in the the very near future. Now, one of the things I want to be a little bit more intentional about doing is... Uh, Basically, taking time to do uh, listener feedback. Uh, I, guys, I am woefully behind on listener feedback. I've I've really let it get sort of out of control a little bit, and there's really not a good reason for that. And so, you know, a lot of people have been, you know, just sort of left languishing. You know, they they sent this feedback. Why is it being and I don't want to say ignored, but in a certain sense, I mean, I guess it is kind of being ignored. You know, why is this happening? You know, and so it's not really fair to them. They've taken all the time to um, uh, to write in and share their thoughts. It's only fair that I at least give them, you know, their due and and read their feedback. So anyway, first, just to tell you how how far behind I am on my on my feedback. The first bit of feedback that I want to go through here, this is entitled All-Star Superman Part 2. This was written by Fanboyamus Prime, dated November the 3rd, 20-fucking-14. So, pretty long time ago here, guys. And uh, Prime writes, Hey, Magnus. Sorry this is late. <laughs> oh, Prime. Yeah, tell me all about late, Prime. <laughs> so anyway, I'm just going to start over. Hey, Magnus. Sorry this is late, but had a backlog to go through. Had a lot of fun listening to the episode once I got around to it. Again, backlog of various shows that I had to deal with. Though surprised I didn't get mentioned when Drawn brought up a, a, a Superman cartoon idea. Or was that recorded before the 25-page Google Doc hit your inbox like Godzilla on Tokyo? And actually... You know, it's funny, it's been all these years, Prime, but actually I do remember that. Um, what ended up happening was uh, uh, John Wilson and I, uh, we recorded the, the uh, that sort of, it was, it ended up being like, I think like a six or seven, like just fucking marathon that uh, he and I did on All-Star Superman. And we, we recorded it. I ended up splitting it into two separate episodes. And then I think it was probably... Oh, jeez, I shudder to think. It had to have been at least two or three months that it just sat there in the can before I was able to release it. So usually I would never remember something like that. But the reason it stands out in this case is precisely because I had to just cut it in half and then release it as two separate episodes because I didn't want to release like a five or six or however however long five or six hour episode on my listeners. I'm just fucking not going to do that, right? So anyway, so that... That's how it all came about, because I know, and I, I remember that mega cartoon idea that you had, and there's no way I wouldn't have at least mentioned it in passing to, to Wilson if he and I had been able to, you know, if I, if I had known about it at the time. So, there you go. Anyway, uh, Prime uh, goes on to say, on All-Star Superman, I'd really want to see what the Titans or Justice League uh, look like uh, in that world. With aspects and influences would uh, 
What aspects and influences would M Morrison use, and what sort of batshit insanity would be, would also be unleashed? And I'm gonna put your email on Prime uh, on pause there, Prime, and say that you know I'm I've always been kind of curious about that myself. Something, basically the what's the rest of the DC universe like in the All Star Superman verse? Like what is that? And ultimately, it doesn't seem like. Uh, Grant Morrison was too interested in showing us that, which I think is a is kind of a shame. But it's like at the same time, you know, maybe he didn't want to do too much external universe building. You know, he wanted to give us just a, like a flavor of it. And honestly, it it could also be that he didn't have you know a uh, like any specific take in mind for. Uh, Batman of the All-Star Superman verse or the Justice League or Green Lantern or, or, or whatever. You know, nothing that would quite compete anyway or compare, for that matter, with the All-Star Superman version that we saw, you know? So I don't know. It's all in how you look at it, I guess. But I've, like you, I'm a little bit curious about that myself. You know, what, as you say, what batshit insanity would he bring? And it's a fair question. I think so. Anyway, Prime wraps up his email by saying, great episode and look forward to what else you do. And thanks a lot, Prime. I'm, I'm really sorry it took so long to, uh, to get to your email, but I am making, uh, I think at least, uh, good faith efforts to uh, get caught up on all this stuff and, you know, slowly but surely uh, bring all of this sort of a little bit closer to... Uh, a little bit closer to uh, uh, the 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 uh, current day. So anyway, um, anyway. So let's see what. Yeah, this this actually looks kind of interesting. I'm gonna go ahead and pull this off the shelf. This is, um, this was an email that was sent over to me by, um, Mike Zumo. Now, guys, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mike Zumo is the host of the Man of Screen podcast, which is can also be found on the uh, the uh, Two True Freaks network. And so basically the shtick of the show is that anything that has anything to do with Superman or anything connected with Superman um, in film or in film or movie serials, uh, TV shows, cartoon shows, just fucking whatever, whatever it is that relates to Superman, that's basically going to be an element in Mike Zumo's Man of Screen podcast. And again, you can find that uh, on uh, the Two True Freaks network, so make sure that you do. So anyway, this was sent in by Mike Zumo ages and ages and ages ago. Um, this was uh, June the 13th, 2015. Mike writes, Hey Magnus, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but the day after listening to your show on episode one, which I assume means The Phantom Menace, my seven-year-old son came home from school, pulled my Star Wars Blu-rays off the shelf, and decided it was time to start watching. I knew I was going to be showing him these films, but thought it would be it, it would just it would just to be closer with the winter release of Episode Seven, otherwise known as The Force Awakens, when the New York weather was too crappy to climb trees in the backyard. What order to show them had been a source of some debate in my own mind. Should I include Episode One? Should uh, just start with episode two or go with the machete order? 
The Machete Order is interesting as it retains the surprise of the Empire Strikes Back reveal about Darth Vader being Luke's father before telling that story. I'm not sure I like the idea of interrupting the narrative of the original trilogy as Return of the Jedi uh, picks story beats right up from Empire. Most of my debating went for naught as he decided he, uh, we were starting with episode one and I decided not to argue with him. If I did, it might turn him off to the idea and we might, and we might not get started again uh, later. So I decided to take one for the team and we started watching episode one. I'll preface this by saying his Star Wars knowledge is limited to being able to recognize Darth Vader by sight and seeing the Lego sets of starships in the in the store, which he usually wants, and I never have money, <laughs> and I never have money for it. Dude, join the fucking club, Mike. <laughs> Dude, I I know that feel, man. Yeah, I know how that goes. Anyway, Mike goes on to say he also knows who Yo who Yoda is since he hangs prominently from my keychain, but. He has no context. That interested me. Like, I figured he liked Jar Jar. He thought he was funny. Uh, I'm sure when he's older, he, he, he will feel differently, but something else hit me that I hadn't thought of before. I came to the prequels with the context of the original trilogy. I knew Anakin would go to the dark side in Episode 3 and become Darth Vader. And he didn't realize Senator Palpatine and Darth Sidious were the same person, like I knew. Um, prime, or not Prime, uh, Mike, I meant to say, I'm going to put your uh, put your email on pause here. And first, I'm going to take a sip off of my Coke. <clears throat> so good. And uh, I'm also going to get a little bit of a, a vapor here. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, Mike, when I was in college, um, I ended up running into somebody. He was a friend. And honestly, he was a good guy. I liked him. But he had never seen the original trilogy. And so he was watching the uh, Star Wars movies, the prequels, as they came out. And uh, he said that after episode three, he, he was planning to watch the original trilogy. You know, he wasn't... He he's not one of us, you know. Uh, Mike, he's not a good fella. He's not one of us. He's a he's a, a, a civilian or he's a mainstream kind of guy. He's a norm like normie, you know. Fucking whatever you want to call this type. This is somebody who's not like super invested in this stuff like you and I are. And so he thought, yeah, you know, I I liked the Phantom Menace. That's pretty good. I'm gonna see episode two when it comes out, and then I'll see episode three, and then after that, probably at some point, I'll I'll watch the Star Wars trilogy, right? And that was just such a fucking mind job to me. Like, how could you get to be college age in, I think at that point, it was the year 2001, and you've never seen the Star Wars trilogy, but somehow he did. And I've always sort of wondered, you know, if that's your introduction to Star Wars, like, what exactly is your perspective on it, you know? Because, I mean, I can suggest, I can speculate, I can theorize, I can imagine, but Mike... I, I really don't know. I really don't know what somebody's, what is somebody's perception if they watch one, two, three, four, five, six, you know? I, I, I don't know. And I understand your point that 
Jedi takes plot points directly out of Empire and then brings them to fullness and resolution. And so that does kind of play havoc with my recommendation for a lot of people that they watch the, uh, the, the Star Wars saga, which consists of six movies in my mind, four, five, one, two, three, six, you know, um, I understand your point. And there's even some wisdom in saying that, you know what, you should watch them four, five, six, one, two, three, basically stick with release order, you know, don't get creative. Don't do that machete order stuff. Don't do four, five, one, two, three, six, the Magnus order. Don't do any of that. Just watch them in release order. And that's that. But again, a lot of, a, a fucking shit ton of people, in fact, probably have not seen the saga in that way. Probably a growing number of people, as time moves on, increasingly fewer, will see them for in release order. It's probably going to be, oh fuck, I don't even know at this point, what the, what the viewing order might be. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, release order is, that would be my recommendation for, for most people. But, you know, Mike, I realize it's been all these years later. You know, if you're even listening to this episode, you know, I'm kind of curious to know, why don't you follow up with me now and let me know what, what exactly is your, your son's perspective on Star Wars now, you know, having seen the movies in whatever order he's seen them in. I think you and I can both say a different order than you and I saw them in. Um, what exactly is his perspective on that? I'm kind of curious to know at this point. So anyway, sorry, Mike, I'm... I'm really not trying to talk your ear off here, but that part, I don't know, that that just kind of got me to thinking a little bit, so I just I at least wanted to ask. So anyway, uh, Mike goes on to write, I'm looking forward to seeing his reaction when he sees those two things happen. And just by which Mike means the revelation that Anakin is uh, Vader and the revelation that Senator Palpatine is Darth Sidious. You know, like what, what will uh, his son's reaction be to those two things? I'm also willing to bet that by the time we get to Empire, Darth Vader's identity won't be at the forefront of his mind, so the surprise might still be preserved. The one scene that really spoke to him was when Anakin left his mother. I told him to, I told him to think about how he would feel if he had to leave his mother, or if something happened to her, as she has a medical condition that, while not dangerous, will have to be managed her whole life. Therefore, there's always the nagging thought in the back of uh, the mind of, what if something happens? You know, whether Jake Lloyd sold it enough to convince me as the jaded adult, he sold it enough for my son who would be lost without his mother. While it doesn't change the fact that episode one is largely unnecessary to the greater story, it was nice to watch it through his fresh eyes and think of some things I hadn't thought of before. Now, I'll probably be gathering my thoughts on episode two soon as he asked if we can watch that tomorrow. And uh, Mike, I'm kind of interested to to hear about that. I mean, at this point, I realized this was years ago when, when all of this happened, but I, nevertheless, I, I am kind of, I am kind of curious about that. You know, uh, you know, if you want to keep this, this Star Wars, uh, talk, uh, going, um, well, I'm, I, I'm game for it, put it that way. So anyway, so I think that's just about all the feedback I should probably get into at least, uh, for this week. Uh, like I say, I do want to be more intentional about doing this in the future, you know, reading, uh, one or two emails in, in uh, each episode that I release. That way, hopefully soon, I can get caught up and, you know, everything... Well, hopefully after that, everything will be just fine. So, anyway. So, either way, though, I, uh, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. Now, as to next week, the plan is for me to talk about Legion of Superheroes uh, Volume 4. 
number nine. Uh, but that's for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs> <laughs>